All right, let's, uh, let's take a seat. We're going to pray, and we're going to get started here. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this uh, time to be in your word. Uh, we know, Lord, that you have blessed us with uh, your word. And part of the word here is the book of James. And so we would ask that you would just bless uh, this time, convict us, and uh, help us to think wisely about wealth, Lord. Uh, we know that you care about uh, us being good stewards with what you have given us. So uh, please work in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start off with uh, a very important statement that Jesus made. He said, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And he says, You cannot serve God and wealth. And so I'm sure one of the 12 disciples listening to this knew who he was serving, right? And it wasn't God. He was in charge of the money box. Maybe you know who I'm talking about already. He used to steal a little bit from what was put into it. He witnessed Mary take a pound of very costly perfume and anointed the feet of Jesus, and, and it made him furious, right? It consumed him. How could this woman do such a thing? Waste precious perfume that could have been sold and given to the poor for about 300 denarii, right? That's a, almost equivalent to a year's salary. Just think about that. Maybe 50,000, 70,000, 100,000. And, and he says, well, this could have been used wisely. This could have been given to the poor. But Jesus corrects this disciple of his and, and also corrects the other disciples who are pretty much getting on the same train with him and saying, yeah, you're right. This was a, a bad waste and he said to him, Mary did a good deed for me. You always have the poor, but you do not always have me. And Jesus stated that the perfume was poured out on his body to prepare him for his burial. Right? He was preparing for his death and resurrection. But of course, let us not forget the middle part there. Right? He had to be buried. Right? That's what 1 Corinthians tells us. What's the gospel that Christ died for our sins? He was buried and he rose on the third day. And so the gospel is more important than giving money to the poor. Yes, it's important to help the poor, right? They need money. They need resources. But what's more important? Their salvation. They need the gospel. And so here Jesus is pointing out that the gospel is very important. And just to summarize this, Mary honored God with her wealth, right? It wasn't a waste. Judas, he was not thinking wisely about wealth. This supposed waste we know, it was too much for Judas's greedy heart. What does he do right after this? After this, Judas goes to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me to portray Jesus? And so they weighed out 30 pieces of silver, and then that's when Judas began looking for a good opportunity to portray Jesus, right? So he wasn't serving God. He was serving wealth. We're going to return to Judas a little bit later, but for now, Remember that there's a wise way to think about wealth and there's a foolish way. If you remember our summary statement for the book of James, wisdom in a world of war for wealth. So what is one of the main idols we're facing today in America? Let's be honest. Wealth, greed, wanting more and more. And so we also see in our text that people are willing to even kill for their greed. 
So let's look at a quick recap here of wealth throughout the book of James. If you remember, we looked at the humble shall be exalted. This first lesson uh, hinted at the dangers of being greedy. So look to James chapter 1. Look at verses 9 to 11 here. If you remember, we learned about the height in humility, right? That the lowly will be exalted. Um, even if you don't have anything, you have nothing, you're poor. But if you have Christ, you have everything. Then we spoke about humiliation and the heat of life. If you look at verse 10, the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because he's like flowering grass that will pass away, right? He's going to wither away. And where really is it about the money, right? Yes, it says rich, but look at the end of verse 11. It says, and to the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So we learned there that there's that hopeless pursuit of hard cash, right? Money doesn't last. Here he is in the midst of his pursuits, and then boom, just like that, he's gone. Then we looked into James chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, foolish favoritism. There we learned about how foolish it is to put wealth before money. Uh, if you remember, there was that command to adhere, which is, do not be partial, right? In verse 1 of chapter 2, do not hold your faith in your glorious Lord Jesus with this attitude of personal favoritism. And so uh, we get this uh, situation where there's uh, a rich man that walks in and there's a poor man that walks in and the rich man is treated with favor while the poor man is treated with disgust, right? They get the leftovers. They get the last seat, the back seat where they can barely hear. And then we also discuss uh, how God's course of action, look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And so we see there, God is choosing the lowly, choosing the humble, uh, caring for those in need. And then we see man's contradiction. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into the court? So there, James is saying, you're treating the rich people who are mistreating you and others good? That's foolish. How could you be doing such a thing? And they're also, um, if you look at verse 7, they are blaspheming the fair name by which you have been called. And so that, we, we saw how foolish that was to uh, favor uh, those who are mistreating us. And then, recently in chapter 4, the problems and pleasures of the proud, where do we see the money here? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. We talked about um, the sources of conflict. And so there we see that, yeah, who's the problem? I'm the problem, right? A lot of times we like to point the fingers, but no, we can be uh, the main problem. And, and what really is the problem? Our pleasures, what we desire. Um, and it gets to our greed. If you look at verse 2, where there's strife in the community, you lust and do not have, so you commit murder, right? You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And so there's a lot of that going on where you really want something. And, and we could argue these people really wanted more money. And lastly, we looked at sinful considerations. Look at verse 3 there of chapter 4. You ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it or waste it on your pleasures. Just think about it. All the money they're getting for is not to help others. It's to benefit their own sinful lusts. It's to benefit their pleasures ultimately. Lastly, last week, we spoke about speaking wisely about plans. Look at verse 13 to 17 here. We talked about this man, or businessman, 
with this arrogant speech, right? It didn't sound like a big deal, but in verse 13 it says, today or tomorrow we're going to do such and such a thing and go to this city and we're going to make a profit, right? Their focus is money and they're not even thinking about God. They have this arrogant speech. And then if you continue, what do we learn about them? They're, they have this ambitious smoke about them. Their people had this desire, this drive, but they're just like a vapor, right? They're going to vanish, in, in just a little while, right? Um, and, and lastly, the last part here is in verse 17 or 16. We talk about the Almighty Sovereign. He is in control. We should say, if the Lord wills, we should do this or that and not be boastful, um, for that is such evil. And so it really sets up the context here for James is going to address the rich. He's going to address those who don't want anything to do with God. So look at James chapter 5, verse 1. We'll be in verses 1 to 6 here. Let's read it together. James 5, 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. And so in this verse, we're going to observe more imperatives from James, right? There's a total of 54. Here's another two coming up. And we're going to discuss the judgment to come for those who continue to serve wealth as their master. So the first imperative here is uh, come now, right? James, he said this earlier in verse 13 of chapter 4. There he says, come now, you who say, and then they say that arrogant, you know, we're going to go make some profit. Here he's saying come now and he's directing his attention to the rich, his audience here, to rebuke them. This should remind us of James' pastoral concern, right? He wants to hold his listeners accountable. So not just believers, but also unbelievers. So he's corrected people's speech before, but here he's going to point out their sin. The next imperative should be familiar. James calls the rich to weep. So first he says, come now, and then he says, weep. Right? The same word he uses in chapter 4, verse 9, when he's talking about repentance, right? But does that mean, here's a question for us, does that mean that James has repentance in mind in this text as well? I don't think so. Why do I argue this? In James chapter 4, verse 9, we saw those three commands together, right? Be weep, be mournful, be miserable. There James had in mind spiritual adultery. People were sinning against the Lord and they had to change their ways. And if you notice, the repentance there is sandwiched between two promises. Uh, The first one with God is going to draw near to you if you draw near to him. And then the second one is humble yourselves and God will exalt you, right? So we have those promises uh, sandwiched in with uh, these calls to repentance. But here in James chapter 5, verse 1, it's a lot darker if you notice. There are no promises, just judgment. And why is that? Could it be that the audience James is addressing is not the same? Now, some commentators would argue, no, 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 James is addressing uh, rich Christians, right? He's talking to believers here, but they just happen to be rich. He's calling them to repentance as well. While others would say, no, no, James is aware that his audience is broad, right? There are some in the church that have been faking it. There are some in the church that are deceived hearers, and now James wants them to recognize their coming judgment. A good reason for this interpretation is that James hasn't addressed his audience as brethren, right? Remember that key word? He always says it, my brethren, beloved brethren. He hasn't said that since James chapter 4, verse 11. 
And he doesn't address them as brethren until James chapter 5, verse 7. Right? And that's going to be after this statement to the rich. And so whichever interpretation you take, one thing is for certain. Judgment is coming for those who do not repent of their greed. So the judgment from God is coming upon those who put wealth before him. Right? The word for coming upon you is, is, has this idea of approaching, right? overtaking, attacking. And so God is not passive in judgment. He will judge. And we know already from James 4.12 that he is able to save and to destroy as the only lawgiver and only judge. Another observation we can make from this text is, could it be that James is following a similar pattern to what Jesus did on uh, when he uh, shared the Beatitudes. I want you to turn with me to Luke 6. Look at Luke 6. I find this pretty interesting. Luke 6, verse 20 here. Jesus is given the Beatitudes, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And look what he does here. He says, blessed are you who are poor, blessed are you who hunger now, blessed are you when men hate you. And then in verse 24, he kind of shifts gears here. He says, woe! To you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed, for now you shall be made hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And so could James be doing something similar? Because in chapter 1, he said, Blessed are those who persevere under trial, for when you are approved, you will receive the crown of life. And then in chapter 5, could it be that he's sharing the woes? He's saying, Woe to you who are Kind of like Jesus saying, that are well-fed, that are rich, and, and you seem like you have it all and you don't need God. Woe to you. And so the weeping James has in mind here is a preview of what is to come. Right? Since he, sh- he just shared that humans are like a vapor and they appear for a little while and they vanish away, it is fitting to sense that judgment is already here. It's that close. James, he's using this word here, uh, howl, right? Which can also be translated to lament loudly or to wail, right? It pictures the coming judgment when the wicked are thrown into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does the book of Matthew describe this place as? As a place for hypocrites and worthless slaves. Another example of James using similar language from before but having different implications is this word misery. If you look at that word there in James chapter 5, verse 1, uh, it says, the miseries that are coming upon you. He recently used that same word, but as an imperative, be miserable. And so here, what is James doing? It's not an imperative. He's picturing the hardship to come. The miseries are coming upon you. So it's not saying, be repentive, be miserable for what you did. No, it's saying, miseries are coming upon you. Uh Uh-oh. This is the bad news. And so the rich person, they may have had a life of ease, uh, but what's coming is not going to be easy, right? It's going to be hard. And just think about it for a moment. I know a couple of Wednesdays ago we've talked about hell, right? Uh, So we need to think about this. Outer darkness, agony, everlasting torment. And why are these people going to receive this judgment? Because they chose rusty riches over Christ. All right, any questions or comments before we move on to the next verse here? Anyone disagree with the interpretation there that I'm arguing it's it's not rich Christians or it's okay? Disagree? 
All right, let's go on. So James chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. We get a little bit more description here of these rusty riches. Look at uh, verse 2 here. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become mouth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and you will consume and it will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you stored up for your treasure. So in these verses, we're going to observe the rusty riches that the rich serve. Uh, we're also going to discuss how we should handle our wealth, so be ready to discuss here. And we're going to look at the book of Proverbs to have a wiser approach about wealth. So the first characteristic here we see about rusty riches is that they are fleeting. James says that the riches, riches have rotted and rusted, right? He may have the rich man in mind from James chapter 2. If you remember, there's that rich man who came in with that gold finger. And we're going to see here it's talking about silver and gold. Uh, and also the garments. He's probably referring to that rich man again that had that fine clothes or bright clothes. And so another key verse that I think will really help us to understand just how uh, rusty riches are fleeting is, again, at the Sermon on the Mount with Matthew six nineteen to 21. So go there briefly. Matthew six nineteen. You're going to see here a lot of connections with the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James. You're going to see a lot of the same words here. It could be that James has this in mind here as he's saying this to the rich. Matthew six nineteen to 21. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. And here it is, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so like Jesus, James wants us to consider, where are your hearts? Right? Are they trusting in rusty riches, or are they trusting in God? James knows that, Jesus warned his disciples to not focus their attention on earthly treasures. Now, there are two main reasons he gives that these treasures are, are uh, not lasting, right? They're fleeting. And it's foolish to think that these treasures will never be taken away from us, right? So that's, that's number one. Um, it's easy to think that, oh, I'm going to have all the money that I have forever. No, no, no. We need to remember uh, that people can look at us as a target and they can take our money. They can steal from us. We live in a corrupt world. There's not a 100% guarantee that your money is safe. And, and the second thing uh, that we see here is that it's, it's fleeting, right? Uh, the moth and the rust, it, it's a picture um, that your money is not going to last forever. All right? So it's fleeting and foolish. Now, we observe this as well in the book of Proverbs. So go to the book of Proverbs. Look at ver uh, chapter 11. Verse 4 here. Talking about fleeting foolishness here. Proverbs 11.4 gives us some wisdom here. It says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Right? So here we have a truth. That on the last day, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you're not going to be able to buy a ticket to heaven. Right? There's no Catholic indulgences here. Sorry. Proverbs 11.28, if you keep going there, 
It says, he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Trusting in riches has no benefit, right? Only condemnation. One more here. Proverbs 27, verse 24. For riches are not forever, nor does a crown endure to all generations. And so you're not going to take your money to the grave. How can you trust in something that is fleeting? It is foolish to do that. Not only is it foolish, but James goes on to show us how it's fierce it's going to be for those who trust in rusty riches. If you remember James chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, uh, he's talking about the tongue there, and he says the tongue is like a fire full of deadly poison. So those similar words there, fire, poison, he's going to use it here in James chapter 5, verses 2 to 3. And so what is he illustrating here about these rusty riches? He's talking about how the rust or this poison is a witness against them. The fact that they kept so much of their rusty riches and didn't use them for the good of others is evidence that they idolized their wealth, right? It's going to consume their flesh like fire. Now, again, he's, he wants us to picture it, right? He's not being literal there. He wants us to picture a fire, but not the present tongue that is uncontrollable at times. Rather, the judgment that is coming for the rich for not being wise with their wealth. Now, another point in James chapter 5, verse 3, is that we have some irony there, right, of those who hoard their money. They are storing up treasures in the last days. And so we, we see here a picture of just there's a lot of greed and there's going to be a lot of judgment. Uh, they were active in their greed and God is going to be active in his fierce judgment of them. So let's discuss this a little bit. We observe that rusty riches are fleeting, they're foolish, they're fierce. So how should we think about money today? So let me ask you that question. Is it wrong to be wealthy? Who wants to answer that one? Yeah. No. no. Okay. Why? Why is it not wrong to be wealthy? I mean, we're talking about all these rich people that are going to hell. Why is it, why is it not wrong to be wealthy? Someone kind of explained that to me. Yeah. Yeah, many would consider us Americans as wealthy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think wealth is relative, too. I, mean, I don't think there's any... At what point do you become wealthy, right? So mm -hmm. Everybody in this room has different income levels, so are some more sinful than others because they make more money? I, yeah, mm. very, uh, yeah. I heard one pastor say that both extremes are very difficult um, for a Christian. Like, Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think of uh, there's some verse in the Bible that says uh, if 
man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the inward. Mm. And I would very much think, well, it's the outward appearance. So, yeah. you know, God, it doesn't matter. Yeah. He gives it to us. Good point. So who are some rich Christians that we know in the Bible? One of the richest men alive. Who would have? Solomon. What about Job? Job had a lot. You have something? Yeah. Mm, okay, I see so your point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I like so that. You're satisfied whatever mm-hmm. man or whenever you are. Yeah. Yeah, you're spiritually rich. Mm-hmm. Very good. You're spiritually rich and you're content. Uh, we'll give two more here. So uh, Diana's hand was up first, and then we'll go to Eugene. Ah, yes. Good point. Mm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, but really good. I like that. Last one, Jane, if you have. Mm. Yes. Yes. Good, good. You want one more, John? All right. As long as you're humble and it's not your main pleasure in life. Uh-huh. As long as you're humble, it's not your, your idol. You don't put it before God. Okay. Good, good. So the follow-up question, but we don't have time for it, was what are real riches? And um, I think we'll see this throughout the book of Proverbs. So look at the book of Proverbs again. What are real riches? I mean, we focus about money and inheritance and all these things that we have, possessions. But Proverbs chapter 3 tells us there's something better than those things. Something that's not tangible, but rather it is something God gives us. Look at Proverbs 3.13. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her profit is better than a profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels. If you keep going there, verse 17. Her ways are pleasant ways and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life. Can you picture that, right? Ooh, beautiful tree of life here to those who take hold of her. And happy are all who hold her to fast, right? You get just picture someone who has wisdom. They are full of joy, peace, right? We remember that in James chapter 3, verse 17, that what is the wisdom from above? First, it's pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. Another text, go to Proverbs 8. We won't read all of it for time, but Proverbs 8, verses 10 to 21, just some key things here. Take my instruction in not silver. Here we have a personification of wisdom. Wisdom's talking. And knowledge rather than choice is gold. Again, wisdom is better than jewels, and all desirable things cannot compare with her. And here's wisdom 
talking here. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverted mouth. I hate, right? So we see that wisdom doesn't dwell with pride. Uh, if you're a prideful person, you're not a wise person. And then 14, counsel is mine and sound wisdom. I am understanding, power is mine. And, and here's how these kings rule, right? They need wisdom to rule. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles and all who judge rightly. And so it's so important um, if we are going to have true riches that we understand what is true riches, what is real riches. It's, it's wisdom, right? Um, I want you to also see how it's important not only to realize what are true riches, but also how to trust rightly. Uh, go with me to Proverbs 22. Look at verses 1 to 4 here. Wisdom, we know, has everlasting benefits, right? And God blesses those who live rightly. Look at here. Proverbs 22, 1 to 4. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth, right? Favor is better than silver and gold. And the rich and the poor have a common bound. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. And here it is. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. And so there's a difference uh, between someone who's humble, someone who's wise, and someone who's wicked, and someone who is proud. Uh, the proud, the uh, ungrateful, yeah, they can have plenty of possessions. They can have rusty riches, but they don't have real riches. They don't have uh, true wisdom. And we know ultimately the reward or uh, how the proud are going to be judged is uh, with judgment. They are not going to be given uh, the real reward that the wise will be having, which is true life, which is obviously it points to life with Christ everlasting. And so, like some of you guys said, we need to be content with what we have and honor God with whatever he gives us. Now, I want us to look at one more proverb, and this one is the one Nancy kind of alluded to. Look at Proverbs 30, verses 7 to 9. Two things I have asked of you. Do not refuse me before I die. What are they? Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. And right, so what do we see here? We see one extreme where it's you're desperate and you're stealing and you're profaning the name of the Lord. And the other extreme where you have everything and you're like, who is the Lord? I got him. I got everything I need. I don't need God. And so what are we asking for? We're asking that the Lord will provide and to keep us from sinful pleasures. Right? We need his grace to not be greedy. All right, any questions or comments on the topics of wisdom or wealth here before we move on? Yep. Food, drink. Shelter. Yeah. You've got those three. They're with mm. content. Mm. And uh, I mean, there is this the argument that everybody is making is what you do with it. And what our sister here said, she's satisfied. Yes. And godliness with contentment. Mm. Contentment. You can't be, you can't get enough to be content. Mm-hmm. You can't be content with what God says 
Yes, very good point. That kind of alluding to Timothy, right? Um, I didn't bring that one up, but thanks for reminding me there. Yeah, we need to be content. Um, and we know the root of all evil is what? The love for money. It's not money. That's not the evil part, right? God has given you plenty. Praise the Lord. Use it, obviously, wisely. But when you start to love the money, and that's all you live for, that's the danger. But yes, we need to be content. Very good point. Let's move on here just for sake of time. Verse, chapter 5, verse 4 here. Let's read it. It says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. And so in this verse, we observe the injustice committed by the rich and the justice of God. And so he begins with another familiar word. He says, Behold, right? He said that in James chapter 3, verse 4, uh, and there it was translated, look. What was he saying there? Look at the ships. Behold the ships, right? How large they were. And there he was illustrating for us um, how huge of an impact that little tongue had, right? And, and there he was wanting us to think about the dangerous power of the tongue. And now he wants us to think about the injustice that has taken place with the rich and their laborers. So we can all relate to this, right? We we have a job, we have work, um, and we expect to get a pay for the work uh, we did, right? Um, so James is going to use a very common job at the time. Uh, day laborers, right? Maybe for a vineyard, since the word mowed there could also be translated to reap. And so they worked these long hours under the sun to bring in the harvest, right? A long day of work, maybe 12 hours. That's a lot of work. You deserve at least a day's wage, right? They got to get paid. But the rich James is addressing, they do not pay them. I don't know about you. Has anyone, when you were supposed to get paid on a Friday, but you didn't get paid that day, did you feel a little like, what's going on here? I'm supposed to get paid. And they say, oh, well, it's coming Monday. I'm sorry. But I need that for my rent. All right. But anyways, um, that's a sidetrack there. Uh, Their pay is crying out against them. Um, James, again, uses figurative language, right? Just like the hoarding of wealth was evidence against them, now this injustice shows the greediness of their hearts. I mean, let's think about it. It's one level to idolize money and to never give, right? No, 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 everything's for me. I work for that. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine. But then it's another level to steal and and to be unjust when these hard workers deserve their pay. He's saying, yeah, I know I owe him this much, but you know what? Uh, They'll figure it out. I mean... They need that pay to survive, right, for their families, for their kids. And so the laborers are depending on the pay, and because they are not given that pay, they're most likely going to die from starvation. And so this is a great injustice, and God does not overlook this sin. Uh, He sees and hears the cries of those who have been mistreated, right? He's here, he's called the Lord of Sabbath, right? It's it's come to his ears, he's aware of, of what is going on, right? He's a good judge and he doesn't ignore injustice. And so justice is coming for those who are doers of the word, right? God is, has said, I will repay, right? Vengeance is mine. And so one characteristic of all true believers is that they are hard workers even when they're going through trials and being mistreated. Uh, remember, the audience of James is 
uh, going through suffering times, right? Persecution. So he's encouraging them that God cares. He is the Lord of Sabbath or the Lord of hosts. That uh, title there occurred uh, 23 times in the book of Malachi. And it stressed that the poor and the helpless, they have the Lord of hosts on their side, right? He is going to destroy the tyranny of the oppressors and punish their iniquities. God, he oversees or he's in charge of millions of angels. He is in control. So he sees your pain, your mistreatment, and he's more powerful than all the rich combined. They're not going to get the last laugh. God will make sure they're punished. All right, moving on here. James chapter 5, verse 5. It says, you have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wants and pleasure. You have fattened your days, uh, hearts in a day of slaughter. And so in this verse, James reminds us of the sinful pleasures of the rich and how it will lead to their slaughter. Notice there's this foolishness of their lifestyle. They have lived luxuriously on the earth and their mindset was similar to that rich man. Remember, Jesus spoke about that in a parable. Uh, what was that rich man all about? Glamour fine appearance, right? He habitually dressed in purple, fine linen. He was joyously living in a splendor every day. And, and maybe for us that can translate having the nicest home, right? Having the newest car, maybe shopping every weekend, shop till you drop, right? For new clothes to make sure everyone thinks you look cool. Ooh, nice, fancy, fancy watch there. The rich man, we see he was also filled, right? He had any food he wanted, Lobster, steak, you name it. He received good things on earth. But when he died, he was in agony. He longed for just a drop of water to cool his tongue. He just needed some relief. So, so do you understand the foolishness when you start to live for yourself? You may have a short life of party, maybe 50, 60, 80 years at most, but then you're going to have an eternity of thirst. James, he also tells us, that they led a life of wanton pleasure. Uh, the idea of this, again, is self-indulgence. It's about living for what brings you pleasure. And that type of lifestyle has terrible consequences. Uh, consequences. Just look at the end of verse, uh, verse 5. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, more figurative language. The irony is that the rich have brought about their own demise by living for themselves, right? We see that James uses the word, the word heart here again. Uh, it could be referring to that inward desire for riches. And so far, James, every time he refers to the heart, he's addressing uh, a type of person, right? First, it was that one who was deceiving himself. He thought he was religious, but he wasn't able to control the tongue. Right? He was deceiving his own heart. And then he talked about those who thought they were wise and understanding. Well, they had selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in their hearts. And then the double-minded, they're called to purify their hearts. And now he's referring to the greedy who are fake because they are not truly rich. They are poor because they don't know God and they have nothing that will last. They will meet God on bad terms and he will give them what they deserve, nothing but wrath. All right, moving along here, our last verse. James chapter 5, verse 6 reads, You have condemned and put to death the righteous man, he does not resist you. So we see here that there's a result for those who continue in the sin of greed. Uh, the rich people are going to get to the point of murder. And then we also observe here in this little verse, 
how a righteous response looks like, right? If you're going through injustice, mistreated, how should you respond? In James chapter 2, verse 6, uh, let me paint the scenario a little bit. We see there that they were dishonoring the poor. They oppressed believers. They dragged them into court. They, ultimately, what did they do? They condemned them, right? They've lied in court. It's likely that the rich Jews uh, controlled the Jewish courts, right? Or they used their influence, their money, with pagan judges to secure an adverse verdict against the righteous. And so they're acting like the only judge in the room, right? Uh, because of their status, they felt like they could just condemn whoever they wanted. And so the condemnation secured has resulted, here we learn in verse 6, in the death of the innocent. This could be literal death or depriving him of his living, right? Since they lose in courts, they will not be able to get the pay that they deserve, and they're going to soon die of starvation like we mentioned before. And so what began as the sin of greed leads to the sin of murder. But what should our response be to such injustice, right? I think this is pretty much the most, um, most we could take out of this today, just the applications pretty much. James points out to us first that this man is, is righteous, right? He was innocent. He was a man of prayer like Elijah. He uses that word, a righteous man, in James 5, verse 16. And so we know that Elijah, he was also persecuted, but what did he do? He persevered, right? And he was a man of prayer. He has eternal treasures. And so the first step in a right response is prayer. James told us to pray for those who persecute us. Jesus told us that. But that's not the only thing we have to do. I want you to look one more time in the Sermon on the Mount. I know we always, we always go back there. Maybe you should have a ribbon there from now on every time we're in the book of James. Look at Matthew 5. I won't read all the verses, but if you look at Matthew 5, 38 to 44, crucial text for us. It talks about how we ought to respond to such injustice so Matthew 5.38 says, You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, and here's the key word, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you, oh, it's talking about the courts. Uh, it says here, take your shirt and let him have your court, uh, coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who acts of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. And here's the key. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what are the two things we have to do here as a righteous response? We ought to not just pray, but love our enemies. James tells us that the righteous man does not resist the rich or wicked. He is following what Christ told him to do. Even if he's being mistreated, he wants the best for the unjust. He wants them to turn from their sin and to turn to the light who has changed him. A good example of a righteous man is Stephen, right? When he was getting killed, stoned, he cried out with a loud voice, kill them all, vengeance. No, no, no. He says, do not hold this sin against them. Do not hold this sin against them. But of course, the best example of an innocent man dying in unjust death was Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God in the crucifixion what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And I get it. Beloved, it's not easy. Not easy to think like this. You know, this is a work of grace, the work of the Spirit. And so may our response be the same. 
when we're being persecuted for the faith, may we remember the gospel, may we remember what Jesus has called us to do, which is be gracious to all. In conclusion, we learned that rusty riches don't last. Those who have hope and wealth will be judged. God is aware of the mistreatment greedy people partake in. And during this trial, the righteous response is to pray for our enemies and to love them. I want us to think of four people as we close. Uh, the first one here is the blessed man in James chapter 1, verse 12. He is blessed uh, even if he's going through trials. Uh, we know ultimately he's going to have the crown of life, right? So many times we focus on an earthly crown uh, to have the glory on earth. No, we need to look forward to the heavenly crown, the crown of life, which is eternal life. The second man is Judas. Remember I said we'll get back to him. Judas, what is his ending? He goes and returns the 30 uh, uh, pieces of silver, and he goes and kills himself, right? Um, Judas there doesn't persevere in faith. And even though he felt guilt for what he did, it didn't lead to repentance. It led to more selfishness. He killed himself. So once again, we observe greed leading to murder. And the next man is the rich young ruler, right? He, he was justifying himself. You know, I follow the law, all of the law, and Jesus exposed his heart for his greed because he said, go and sell all you have to the poor and then come follow me and you would have riches in heaven. I mean, here he is thinking about um, the temporary, thinking about uh, life on earth, and Jesus said, you got to think about life with me forever, in eternity. And, and he went away sad, and, and Jesus says, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And so who can be saved, Jesus says, with men? Uh, things are impossible, with, but with God, all things are possible. And so God, yes, he can save anyone. I don't want anyone thinking here, well, I know some rich people, they're not going to be saved. Uh, God can save anyone. He can save a rich person like our last person here, Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus, he was a rich tax collector. And how does he respond to Jesus' invitation? He says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. What was Jesus' response to that? Today, salvation has come to this house. And so may we think wisely about wealth and serve God alone. Amen. Let's pray.